Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizigo. In today's episode, we will talk about two eerily similar murders that occurred involving blue tape. While both of these women's murderers walk free, will their families ever find justice? Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Sue VB Ben Bremen, Blanca Blanca, Jiwan Edwards, Selkie, Nico, Elijah Hancock, Anominom, and Dr. Bob for their support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free on Patreon. On December 17, 1999, a significant event occurred that would change the life of 57-year-old Hong Tae-sun. She lived with her husband in a split house on the second floor in Susangu, Daegu. This bustling city, which I have had the privilege of residing in for the last five years, is a treasure trove of unique sights and experiences. Susang is, in particular, breathtakingly beautiful and complete with magnificent mountain views and a charmingly small lake that captivates the heart of all who visit it. Despite its rapid development, this area has retained its peaceful, relaxed atmosphere. It's the perfect place to unwind and take in the beauty of nature. The small lake in particular is a sight to behold. I highly recommend renting a swan-shaped paddle boat and taking a leisurely paddle around the lake. As for Hong Tae-sun, she and her husband had built a happy life in their home, despite the distance between them due to his job. Mr. Hong worked in Ansong, which is about five to six hours northwest of Daegu, south of Seoul, and he could only come home on the weekends if he didn't have work. To make things more convenient, he had rented a small place in Ansong during the week, but Nevertheless, they had made sure to stay in touch by calling each other almost every day. When Tesum was alone, she was sociable and very hospitable. She loved to spend time with friends and family. She was often entertaining guests at her home, which was always open to visitors. Her warm and friendly personality made her really popular amongst those who knew her. Her husband, Namgil, a pseudonym I'm going to use for him, was a man of routine. Every day at 9am, he would call his wife to check on her and just have a chat. It was a simple yet essential ritual that they had established in their marriage. On December 17th, he made his usual call, but there was no answer. He didn't think much of it at first, as she could have been occupied with something or perhaps had stepped out of the house. So he waited a while and called again, but once again, there was no answer. Growing concerned, Namgil called a few more times throughout the day, but each time he was met with silence. He decided to leave a message, hoping that his wife would return his call. He assumed that she was probably out with her friend, or had run some errands. However, when he couldn't get a hold of her the next day, he started to feel uneasy. It was unusual for his wife to not answer his calls, especially for an extended period like this. Despite his growing anxiety, Namgil didn't jump to 
confusions just yet. He thought maybe his wife had decided to go on a trip with some friends, which she had taken trips before with her friends, but she had always informed him that she was going somewhere beforehand. But that wasn't the case this time. As the days went by without any contact from his wife, Namgeld began to seriously worry. It was unlike her to be out of touch for such a prolonged period, and he couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. Despite his growing concern, he tried to remain calm and not panic. However, on the fourth day, December 20th, he made another attempt to reach his wife and still received no response. It was at this point that he knew something was wrong, and his worry turned into panic. The idea of not knowing where his wife was or what had happened to her was unbearable. After his several failed attempts to contact Tessun, Namgil began increasingly worried and decided to take action. Tessun had family in the city, so Namgil called her brother, Temin, a pseudonym that we'll use for him. Namgil asked her brother to come check on her at their house. Temin was also concerned, as he had not heard from his sister in days, and he and his wife immediately drove to their home in Susang. The house was a split-level home with a modern-style design. It had a red brick fence surrounding it and a double-door gate, with a single door adjacent to it. Their home faced an alley that was shared with many other homes of similar design. The foundation of the home was large and had many rooms, while the second floor was about half of the size of the first floor and featured a large open balcony that they used for hanging laundry or seating. The outdoors staircase led up across the front of the home, providing easy access to the second floor. Tessun and Namge lived in the smaller apartment upstairs, which had four rooms, including two bedrooms, a living room, and a kitchen. Their daughter still had a room in the home, but she was not living with them at the time. Upon arriving at the home, Taemin and his wife rang the bell on the gate, but there was no answer. Taemin also buzzed the neighbor's bell, but nobody was home. He decided to jump over the fence and make his way up the stairs to the apartment. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. He tried peeking into the windows and saw that the house was in a complete mess, as if the home had been robbed. He feared the worst and forced his way into the home by opening a window. As he entered the home and turned the corner into the living room, he saw a sight that he said haunted him for the rest of his life. Temin found his sister dead. The scene was horrifying. Tessun's lifeless body was lying on her back with her arms tied above her head with electrical cables. Her legs were also bound tightly with cables at the ankle. Her head was covered by a plastic bag that had been repeatedly taped around. Under the bag, her mouth had been gagged with a glove and blue tape. Blood pooled under her head and a bloody rock was found next to her body. The brutality of the attack was evident from the blood stains under her head. The discovery of her body triggered a massive investigation known as the the Daegu Blue Tape Murder Case. The specific tape used is known as Chung Tape, which is a tealish color and sold at stores everywhere in Korea. It's just your average duct tape, but instead of silver, which a lot of countries use, it's typically a teal blue. The city had not witnessed anything like this before, and the incident gained widespread attention. Given the ransacked state of the apartment, many began to speculate that this was the result of a robbery gone wrong, possibly by a psychopathic individual. Due to the extensive mess made in the apartment by the attacker, the police hoped to find some evidence left behind that could lead to the perpetrator's identity. However, they were unable to find any fingerprints or any clues to help them determine who was responsible for the death of Hong Tae-sun. 
Investigators found no evidence in the home that suggested the crime was committed accidentally, indicating that this robbery was not a robbery gone wrong. The attack involved several deliberate actions. The coincidences began at the start of the day. To begin, Tyson had purchased expensive life insurance from a nurse friend of hers in the days prior to the attack. Then, there was her downstairs neighbor. Her downstairs neighbor had recently moved in and was soon to be paying a large lump sum deposit on the apartment to Tesun, who owned the building. This kind of deposit is known as Junse. Junse deposits are quite large, and after paying them, you don't pay any rent for your time at the apartment, but the landlord can invest with that money you gave them until you move out and you're given the money back. Korean people really like this style of housing, but it's quite impossible to get a loan for this unless you're married, or your parents get one for you. So most people just use Wolse, which is a medium-sized deposit for a discounted rent. It's much more rare to make a small deposit and pay large rent, which is more the American-style system. Tesson expected to receive a deposit from the new tenant for the apartment. The tenant had left early in the morning after providing her with information for utility payments, and the tenant had an alibi for the rest of the day, which excluded them from the list of suspects initially. Nonetheless, the deposit could have been a motive for the crime, as it may have been in the form of cash in an envelope or a check, which is still a very common way to pay in Korea, which, as a side note, the Korean government incentivizes the use of debit cards through tax breaks because so many Koreans take out cash, as using a debit card provides proof of tax payment. However, frequent cash withdrawals may result in tax liability if you don't provide receipts. Anyways, the perpetrator may have been searching for this cash or check to steal that deposit. Learning about Taesun's journey with her home really broke my heart. She purchased this home with her husband after taking out considerable loans. They were tired of renting apartments and wasting away their money on rent. Over the next decade, they lived frugally and paid off their debts to finally own their home outright. In 1998, the couple's debts were finally paid off and they were able to start saving for things that they actually wanted to do. Tessin took pride in her home and was often entertaining guests and family there. Her daughter lived with them for a while and they even remained close after her daughter started her own family. So they also visited the home often. It's particularly tragic that Tyson's life was cut short just as she was beginning to enjoy the fruits of her labor and financial responsibility. So there are possible motives for this case, but the perpetrator also made a lot of very specific choices in the attack that are suspicious. On the day that Tyson's body was found, the apartment was certainly in a disastrous mess, but two cups of mostly drank coffee were set into the sink. These cups were precious to Tesun, and according to her family, they were only used for very special guests. On the counters, Tesun had also taken out the ingredients to prepare kimchi, a Korean dish of fermented cabbage prepared in various different ways. A staple food in almost all Korean homes, it appeared like she was in the process of washing the cabbage with salt water before meeting the guest. It was clear that she wasn't expecting to have this guest because the process of washing the cabbage can take a long while. The process to make kimchi typically occurs in the wintertime and usually involves the entire family. Tessun was preparing the cabbage for this by washing it with salt water, which is a process repeated over and over over hours to prepare the cabbage for fermentation. It's likely that her family could have been invited over in the following days to help her partake in preparing the kimchi for a year's worth of eating. If you're interested in the process of making kimchi, or kimjang, I'll make a blog post about it on Patreon. 
But in short, cabbage and other vegetables are prepared for the fermentation process and then different kinds of spices and ingredients are added for rich flavors. You may see large clay pots near Korean homes. These are fermentation jars as a natural way to store and ferment kimchi outdoors. Kimchi-only fridges are also very popular in Korea. It's a pretty labor-intensive task to make kimchi for an entire year in a few days' time. So Tessin had her work cut out for her as she prepared the cabbage alone. It was unlikely she had expected this guest to arrive, but that she was pleased to have them over as she had prepared coffee in her favorite cups. The police suspected that the attack began as the assailant subduing Tessin to the ground. Initially, they believed that the cause of death to be the blow to the head with a rock found on the ground next to her body. But due to the lack of blood splatter, forensic criminologists determined that she was dead prior to being struck with the rock. The scalp has more blood vessels than any other part of the body, meaning a large wound would cause blood splatter that was just not present at the scene. Even with the blow to her head occurring over the plastic bag. The blood pooled below her head slowly because her heart was not pumping any longer. The cause of death was determined to have been cervical compression, or simply she was strangled to death. The glove and blue tape that was gagging her, the electrical ties on her wrists and ankles, and the bag over her head were all placed post-mortem. Each of these items were procured from the home and not brought in from outside. Namgil, her husband, identified the items coming from various places in their home. Prior to being struck with the rock, there was no signs of resistance against the ties or gag that would result in disrupted tape or injuries to her skin. The perpetrator's motive for making the crime scene appear even more disturbing is not entirely clear. It's possible that they wanted to mislead the police and divert attention away, but by creating a chaotic and bizarre scene, they may have hoped to make the investigators believe that it was a psychopathic stranger that was responsible for the crime, instead of potentially someone that she loved and cared about. Alternatively, the perpetrator may have had a twisted desire to cause more pain and suffering to the victim, even after her death. Ultimately, without any more information about the perpetrator's identity or psychology, it's difficult to say why they made specific choices in the attack. The investigation into the Daegu Blue Tape murder case had some details released to the public, including that the police decided to rule out the possibility of the perpetrator being a woman due to the tightness of the knots used to tie up the victim's hands and ankles. They specifically noted that the knots were tied so tightly that they believed it had to have been a man and a man with mountaineering experience because of the specific knot tied. They completely excluded all women from the suspect list. This excluded the victim's friend who initially had sold Tessun insurance a few days prior to the murder. She had received a call from Tessun on the morning of the incident. She was the last person to speak to Tessun, but did not make any comments about what was said on the phone to the media. The police cleared her as a suspect after hearing her alibi, but it was evident later when we're visited by independent investigators that both the friend and the downstairs tenant should have been included in the suspect list for much longer than they were. Later, those independent investigators proposed that it was likely that this indeed was a murder for money, but that Tessin was not gagged prior to being choked, as the perpetrator may have been demanding Tessin's bank account password or the location of the deposit money. This again could have been a robbery gone wrong by someone who knew the victim, and then a hasty attempt to cover up their crime by making it appear much more planned than it was. 
It should be mentioned that towards the end of the discoveries from the initial investigation, no items, money, or jewelry were taken from the home that the family could account for. The deposit had not yet been given that day, and so the money just wasn't there. Tessin had not canceled her life insurance, and the husband was not suspected, despite being the benefactor for said insurance. He did have an alibi in Ansang for that day and the days prior. Most of the valuables in the home had been hidden in secret places in the daughter's room as the couple kept their most expensive items tucked away, but the entire home was completely turned over. It's regrettable that the investigation had come to a close at this point. Despite this, independent investigators did examine the case later on a television series dedicated to investigative reporting, but they failed to uncover any new information. Tessin's family, specifically her daughter, would later try to find justice again for her mother nine years later in 2008 when an eerily similar murder took place in Pusan. So today's episode is indeed a double feature. On May 7th, 2008, in Sagu, Busan, a few hours south of Tesun and Tegu, a man was returning home after work at 7.25 p.m. to the house he shared with his wife. They lived on the fourth floor above a few businesses. However, when he got to their front door, he discovered that the door was unlocked and wide open. He rushed inside to discover his worst fear. His wife was laying on the bedroom floor, arms bound by blue tape in front of her body, dead. Their home was turned over in a disastrous mess. It's worth noting that while this incident is similar to Tessin's case, the police did not officially announce any connection between the two, but Tessin's daughter believed that the perpetrator was the same. The victim's name was not released in this case, but she was a woman in her 30s. We will use the pseudonym Suman. Suman and her husband were not wealthy and they lived in a small apartment. They actually owed a lot of money and debt for their home and lived very frugally. However, valuables like jewelry and money were stolen from the home. According to the initial dispatch report from the police, the perpetrator had broken into the home, attacked Suman, and ransacked the place. The window was opened by breaking it in, but the window was on the outer wall, only accessible from above on the roof. Her husband testified that he did not notice anything suspicious when he left home at 1 p.m. that day. However, the mailman had arrived at 2 p.m. and reported that he did not receive any response when knocking on the door or ringing the buzzer. He even attempted to shout inside the apartment because he needed a signature for the package, but eventually left because no one appeared to be home. Simon's husband then arrived later that night at 7.25 p.m. to find her dead. There were many similarities to Tessin's murder nine years prior, but the police would not make that connection. In fact, it was never mentioned until Tessin's daughter tried to get them to reopen her mother's case. Suman was strangled to death and was found with blue tape wrapped around her wrists, ankles, and mouth that was undisturbed by resistance. She was dead prior to being bound and gagged. However, there was hope in this case to find the perpetrator. Marks from the assailant's shoes were present all over. A dusting of powder was everywhere in the bedroom, from the robber throwing a tin of cosmetic powder down onto the ground. The powder placement appeared to have been intentional as it was poured everywhere on the bedroom floor. As the perpetrator then moved throughout the house, they left behind shoe prints. It seemed that they had attempted to cover their evidence by pouring powder around the room, but accidentally poured it on their shoes as well, which then left behind sprinklings of dust throughout the rest of the home. The tracks ended at a window near the front of the home that peered outside into the parking garage. From there, the tracks didn't lead anywhere else. They stopped 
facing towards the window looking down onto the parking area, as if they were watching something. The tracks stopped because there was no more powder residue, but the police believed that they left again out of the window back onto the roof. The police were stumped, however, on whether or not the left-behind tracks were purposeful or not. Were they trying to make it seem like a careless robber spilled powder and searched the home leaving behind tracks? Or did they actually make a mistake when covering their tracks? The most bizarre part of the case is that Simmons' body was still really warm when her husband came home. Not because her murder just took place hours prior, but that the perpetrator had placed a heated blanket over her body. It was already quite warm outside, so it wouldn't have made sense for Simmons to have used the blanket on her own. The blanket, turned to the highest heat, made determining the time of death much more difficult. It should be said that her husband was suspected, but he did have an alibi for the hours he was out of the home after 1 p.m., but the cause of death could have been prior to 1 p.m. The husband's shoes did not match the prints of the scene. However, again, it isn't impossible to get a pair of shoes and throw them out. The first suspects on the list were the neighbors. The couple had received multiple noise complaints because they raised puppies. The puppies that they had were kept outside on the balcony and were relatively unfriendly and barked at all hours of the night, especially when anyone passed by the house. That day, however, the puppies were silent. The neighbors protested that they did not hurt Suman and believed that the perpetrator had to be someone who frequented the house often or her husband himself because the dogs never barked at Suman or her husband and the dogs were silent that day. It should be noted, however, that the dogs were not harmed in the perpetrator's attack. Subsequently, the police disclosed a piece of information that increased suspicion towards the husband again. They revealed that he had taken out three life insurance policies on his wife and the couple had significant debt. Due to their financial difficulties, they were unable to make payments towards their debt and they were in danger of losing their apartment. Considering their financial troubles, the husband was the one who stood to gain the most from his wife's demise. Nevertheless, the investigation into the husband ended as soon as it began. Simon and her husband had only been in a common law marriage and had never officially registered their relationship. As a result, the insurance payout would have gone to her immediate family instead, and the house was also in the wife's name. Consequently, the husband was evicted from the property following his wife's death. However, this did not negate the fact that the debts were also in the wife's name, and after her demise, the debt was waived, so he was off the hook for it. As a result, Simmons' family could also live without having to repay any of the debt. With no clear evidence supporting or refuting the husband's involvement in the crime, it appeared that there would be no resolution to this case. The removal of the statute of limitations for murder cases in Korea provides a renewed opportunity for justice in such cases. Though some of these cases may remain unresolved, I sincerely hope that the families of the victims have been able to find solace and closure despite the lack of justice. It's essential that we continue to seek justice for victims of violent crimes, but we must also strive to support the families of the deceased in their grief and help them in their healing process. The evidence pointed to the possibility of robbery being the motive in both cases, but the perpetrator's identities and whereabouts remain unknown. The investigation into their deaths serves as a reminder of the importance of thorough investigation and careful analysis of evidence in solving complex criminal cases. 
While justice may not have been served in this case, the hope remains that someday the truth will come to light and the perpetrators will be brought to justice. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you would like to vote on future episode topics, join Korean True Crime's Patreon today. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send feedback, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. 다음에 또 봐요. See you next time.